0: a lot happens every week. But uh, God's still in charge and it controls. So can you pull me down just a bit? Testing. There we go. Okay. The drug was called Erbitux. A young company called ImClone said it had a hot new cancer treatment drug called Herbitux and its stock absolutely skyrocketed. Investors waiting for the next medical marvel to invest in poured millions into mclone stock. Then the FDA failed to okay this new anti cancer drug, and mclone stock tanked. Their CEO was indicted, and investors lost millions of dollars. What happened? Greed. Greed. Greed is the good old American capitalism run amok. The desire for money out of control. We've had our share of securities and stock scandals over the years. And what does it come down to? The problem is greed. Greed. And greed has moved from the sleazy dark world of organized crime and Colombian drug lords and Mexican drug smugglers to the highly successful and sophisticated all-American boardrooms of America's most prestigious institutions. And what happens? Something called greed. Greed is a pervasive problem. It shows itself more subtly in our homes and neighborhoods. Gambling, casinos, lottery tickets, mega millions, jack, jackpots. Why, why do I want to win the lottery? Why do I want to help the poor? Ah, not so much. To help me buy what I want. That's kind of what it is. From the boardroom to the living room, greed is a part of human nature it's much better to just admit it that we are all affected somehow by greed. And we hide it in respectable ways, whether we play bingo, the lottery, or the stock market, or we just want more of something we already have. It's greed. This is not a 21st century phenomenon. Humans have been dealing with greed for a long time. And today we're going to look at a passage in, in the life of Christ, in, in the Bible, the book of Luke. We're going to look at mis- misconceptions that we have, mistakes we make, and some lessons we can learn, learn as we look at first things first. First things first, I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to Luke 12, Luke the 12th chapter, it's on page 845 in the Bible in the, in the rack in front of you, or you can follow on the projection. Luke 12, and we're going to start with just a couple of the verses, 13 through 15. Luke twelve thirteen, Someone in the crowd said to him, Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This starts with the guy asking, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. This guy asked Jesus to settle a family squabble or dispute. And he wasn't asking for Jesus to arbitrate an equitable settlement. He wanted the judge to rule in his favor. And in this day, teachers or rabbis sometimes were asked by Jews to rule in points of law that were in dispute. And this guy wanted Jesus to help him for his own selfish gain. He was greedy. He was greedy. And Jesus saw this was not just a dispute over a will or inheritance. The deep, deeper problem was something called greed. Greed. It was driving the problem. Now, as we look at that, I want to start with talking about misconceptions that we have, misconceptions we have. This is as old as 2,000 years ago when Jesus was here and we have it today. Misconceptions we have. Number one, letter A, I am what I own. I am what I own. My identity is tied up in what I own. It's the car, it's what I drive. I'm a BMW or I'm an SUV, I'm a pickup or four by four. My identity is tied to the car I drive. And advertisers convince us that what we drive is part of our image, is part of who we are. Numbers of years ago, the manufacturers of Cadillac realized it had a problem. Cadillacs had a very difficult time appealing to the younger generation, boomers and busters and below. Cadillac was viewed as a car for older people, Builders. And I watched with interest as they tried through advertising campaigns to appeal to the younger generation. I'm not sure they succeeded. I think they, at least it appealed to older people who wanted to be young. That's kind of what happened. I remember when Judy and I first bought or bought our first Buick. First Buick. Buicks are great cars. It was It was used, it was in great shape, it was affordable for our budget at the time. But I went into this serious identity crisis that when after I bought the car, the salesman said the average age of a Buick buyer in the United States is 68. Well, I was in 40, I was 40 something, and so that just, that blew me. And my kids never, never let us living down buying an old person's car. I am what I drive, isn't that what we think? Or I am what I own, the house where I live, my type of house, the expensive house, the location, the neighborhood, the prestige and status. I I just fit here. I am what I own. Or maybe there are accessories. You have everything from the Timex to the Rolex. Timex to the Rolex. Or you have Bic pens and Mont Blanc pens. Mont Blanc. Now, we served at a church that was in a rather wealthy part of eastern Seattle for a few years. And the ministry people that I worked with bought me a gift. And it's the first time i had ever noticed or knew anything about Mont Blanc pens. I'd never even noticed them before. And I thought, well, that's nice. They bought me a pen. What I didn't realize is that Mont Blanc pen cost over $300. And the refills were $20 plus. I mean, it was a very expensive. It was a status thing. Man, I want you to know. I am what I own. And if I am what I own, then I'm definitely going to want more. We want more. It generates greed. Misconception two, I'll be satisfied if I just have more. You know, We just kind of live this thing. I'll be satisfied if I just have more. I've said this before ask this question, who is more satisfied, the man with 16 million dollars or the man with 16 children? And the answer, of course, is the man with 16 children, because he doesn't want any (laughs) more. More. It's the myth of more. And, And by the way, capitalism is biblical, and can be contrasted with greed. Capitalism, in its pure form, is, is a fair exchange, fair profit. It's a win-win. And our practice of capitalism all depends on our internal state of heart, the motivation. Why do we do what we do? Greed, on the other hand, profits at another person's expense, trying to do something at someone else's expense. And actually, that's what socialism does. Margaret Thatcher famously said, the trouble with socialism is that sooner or later you run out of other people's money. And that's true. But greed is an inside issue. It's an inside job. It's a motivation. I win, you lose. I just get more. And what does Jesus say about greed? He says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Supposed to watch out because you'll be taken advantage of. No, watch out because greed will actually destroy your life. He says a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So, don't take pride in our possessions. Those are two misconceptions. I am what I own, and I'll be satisfied if I have more. Then Jesus illustrates the points by telling a parable, a story. He did this so well, and. In verse 16, he goes on to talk about this parable. Verse 16, and he told him this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat Drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. These are some mistakes he made, some mistakes we make, that we make. The first one is selfishness, selfishness. This man uses the word I six times and the word my five times. That tells you a little bit right there. What shall I do? I have no place for This is what I will do. I, I, I. My crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, myself. It's all my, my, my. The focus is on me and my, self-centered. This man did not think of his possessions as gifts from God, Things lent to him by God to be used for God's purposes. He didn't even think about the transitory nature of his possessions. He didn't think of helping anybody else. And maybe God gave him his possessions to use to help the poor, help the needy, or expanding the kingdom of God. It was just all about, all about him, all about I, my, and me. Storing up things for himself, for himself. How many times do we think of our possessions as mine, mine? What's the first word our children learn after dada? Of course, dada is first. It's easier to say than mama, I guess. Then, then it's dada is first. Then no, typically is the second one. What's the third thing they learn? Third word they learn, mine, mine. Who taught them that? Judy did. (laughs) It's our human nature. It's our selfishness. It's self-centeredness. We don't have to teach our children to be selfish. That comes naturally. We have to teach them unselfishness, how to share. And this attitude, this selfishness, is a mistake. It's also called sin. It's part of our sinful nature. And it offends God. It goes against the character of this kind, loving character and caring God. Selfishness. The second mistake the man made was forgetting God. Forgetting God. Verse 17 says, he thought to himself. Verse 18, he said, this is what I'll do. He talked to himself. Well, he was talking to the wrong person. He forgot God. Have you ever had a conversation with someone and... They just really were talking to themselves. It didn't matter whether you were there or not. They just wanted to talk, and they talked to themselves. They liked the sound of their voice, and you finally see, they're not talking to me, they're talking to themselves. What input do you have? You have no input. This guy was talking to himself. God was nowhere to be found. Nowhere in his plans for the future. So is it first things first, or is it first things me In our endeavors, our ambitions, our goals and drives, do we include God? Do we talk to him about it? Or do we hold one-sided conversation with ourselves and then kind of invite God to eavesdrop? Do I talk to God or just me? Is no one else consulted? How can we gain true perspective for our lives without consulting God? How can we see truth without consulting God? How do we know what first things first mean without God this man's goal was to achieve ease and prosperity to eat drink and be merry the third mistake we make that he made was self-satisfaction self-satisfaction verse 19 said his soul feeds on his goods what does that mean well this man looks at his possessions and he feels good that's what it means he, he looks at his accomplishments, and he feels good. Now, is it okay to feel good about what we've accomplished? I wash and wax the car and stand back and say, wow, that looks great. I did a great job of detailing. Or we finish landscaping the yard or painting the house, and we stand back and say, wow, that looks great. Is that okay? Or we finish the new website, look at it, and say, wow, I'm really good. Is, is that okay? It's fine to appreciate our successes in a accomplishments, but move on. Get get over it. It's not about us. Do we ever do that? Do we ever look at what we own and feel good? Feed our souls on our goods? Now you say, well, I don't have barns and grain. They won't fit in my backyard, so I'm okay. But do you ever sit back and look at your possessions and feed on them? The house that's paid for, or the new car, or the Rebuilt classic Corvette. I'm just, sorry, I'm talking to Byron here. <laughs> or, or the clothes in your closet or the bank statement or the IRA retirement account. We can look at what we own and look and start. We can actually feed on that. And that's what he did. That's what this guy did. It feels good. But it's also a mistake. It's a sin. It's self-satisfaction. The fourth mistake he made was assumption. Assumption. Letter D. Verse 19. He said to himself, you have plenty of goods laid up for many years. What was he saying? He was assuming he has control over his destiny. had control over his destiny. I control my future. I control my future. And God says to him, you fool. You fool. I remember in the Late nineteen nineties, as I watched our congressional leadership in Washington, DC, they just passed a balanced budget amendment, and they were giddy at the fact of the fact that they were gonna have massive budget surpluses. I mean, I was like, wow, we are set in America. This is awesome. We have plenty of money. They said, let's let's spend it. We control our destiny, we control our future. And God says, You fools. Then he says six words. Stock market crash, housing meltdown, and Iraq war. No, it's seven words, sorry, seven words. And now, of course, we look at the wasteful things that our government has done. $30 trillion in debt, it's just awful. They had this idea that we were going to be a prosperous and do great. They had no control over that. How many of us make the mistake of assumption, assuming I have control over my destiny? No one of us knows. Only God knows. Ecclesiastes 9.11 says, I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Time and chance happen to them all. Instead of looking at our goods and our, assuming all this stuff, saying, God, I need to keep my eyes on you. You're the one that knows my future. We don't know. Only God knows. Our accounting will come at the end of this life. No one knows. So assumption, the fifth mistake we make is to miss the purpose of our life. Miss the purpose of our life. This is perhaps the greatest tragedy. God didn't put us on earth to accumulate possessions. The American dream really can become the American nightmare. Now, God put us on earth to have life and have it to the full. But he says here, life does not consist in our possessions. It's not made up of possessions. So what can we learn? Let's look at the next section and the lessons to learn. Verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food and body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. Oh, let's stop there. Basically, life, he says, life is more than what we own. That There's the physical dimension, which is our possessions. We see, we play with, we touch, taste, and drink. There's the relational dimension, which is family, friends, children. And most important, the spiritual dimension. There's a God who wants to know us intimately, wants to know us intimately and, and be known by us. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus taught. He came to introduce us and teach us about this God that we can know personally. It's through Jesus that we can know and experience the spiritual dimension. That's the part that lasts forever, even past this present life. The second lesson, verse 24, says, consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barns, yet God feeds them and how much more valuable are you than birds? Second lesson we are highly valued by God regardless of our possessions. We're highly regarded. So, no matter having a lot, have little, have nothing, whatever, we are highly valued by God no matter what our possessions are. God values you, God loves you, God cares about every single detail. Of your life. This passage, and then the passage in Matthew 6, talking about the very hairs on your head are numbered, and he takes care of the birds. He, he feeds the birds, he clothes them. He clo- makes, the, makes the lilies in the field uh, bloom, and he clothes them. And he says, You're much more valued than that. He knows everything that's going on in nature and your life as well. Our world demeans the individual. Cities produce groups of anonymous persons that are lost in the crowd. We establish online friendships through Facebook and exchange pictures on Snapchat and Instagram. We have an illusion of relationships that our value is is by how many friends we have. And do we matter to God? We just think, you know, I'm just one of millions. I'm just a more highly evolved being from pond scum. No, that's not true. The Bible makes it abundantly clear, and nature confirms the fact that we are created special and unique. Every person is unique. We all have a unique set of genes made in the image of God. And he says you're much more valuable than birds. And God notices what every bird is doing. How is that? that possible? It's amazing. The third lesson... Verse 25, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Let us see, worry is a nonproductive waste of time. Worry is a nonproductive waste of time. If we live for ourselves, focus on I, on my, and me, assume that we're in control of our destiny, then we have to rely on ourselves. And that causes worry. If I'm responsible for everything, I worry. The next lesson, why is that? Verse 27. Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow, is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. Lesson four, God will take care of all our needs. That's the basis of our Christian faith. It's a walk of trust. It's a journey of faith that says, God loves me. I trust in him. I will put my trust in him. And I'm going to quit relying on just me, trusting God. And the last lesson, verse 31, verse 31 says, But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. If we seek God first, all else follows. If we seek God first, all else will follow. This this in Matthew 6.33, it says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. That is my that verse is my primary focus verse of my life. My life verse. Seek God first and he'll add all these things to you. Put first things first. First things first. John fourteen six says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. How do we put first things first if we are not doing it? First of all, admit our problem of self-centeredness, forgetting God. Confess that we need God. Ask him to forgive you, he will, and then seek him by saying, God, you take charge of my life. You be the leader. If you've never received Jesus, invite him to come into your life and say, I want you to be first. And whether you're here this morning and needed a reminder, just a reminder to put first things first, or you've never given your life to God through Jesus to make first things first. I'm calling all of you today to make a decision in your head, brain, and a commitment in your heart. It's with our mind and our heart that we make this. To seek God first and then we can make first things first. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you gave us this parable and this illustration dealing with stuff that we deal with all the time and I pray Lord that you would continue to challenge us anew that we would see what you're calling us to do and that Father we are people that you care about deeply every, every part of that and I pray Lord those that are, ch- that are challenged right now Dealing with all kinds of things. And it may not be greed. It may be just a lack of trust. It may be fear because of what's happening in our world. It can be all kinds of things. And I just pray, God, that we would, we would again begin to trust in you as we put you first. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.